0: Went straight down the middle, then it started
1: to... Welcome to another edition of For the Good of the Game. Bruce Devlin, we've got a repeat guest here this morning, and uh, you talk about uh, a hometown boy made good. Uh, that's what this guy's all about.
0: Isn't that the truth? Living in Augusta, born right around the masses and then... To win it in 1987, Larry Myers, that was some effort. And I know a lot of people around Augusta, Georgia, uh, were happy to see you win that year. Thanks for joining us again.
2: Well, Bruce, Mike, thanks. It's great to be with you all. It was very special and the fans were great. And uh, it's so great to go back there every year. And it's still hard to believe that I actually did win it.
1: 35 years this year. Of course, uh, we're probably going to confuse our listeners because uh, we will label this as part one, uh, even though this is our second time getting together. But that's okay. We had a chance in our first visit to talk about uh, uh, your experience at the Masters, particularly your your, your great win in, in, in 1987. But we thought we, we would get back t- uh, to you and cover a lot of the, the neat stuff that we didn't get a chance to cover our first set down. And so the the first thing I think we want to do is just take our listeners back to uh, the early days of, of Larry Mize growing up in Augusta, Georgia, and, and learning the game and, and, and so forth. So, but before we do, Lawrence Hogan Mize, where'd that middle name come from?
2: Well, believe it or not, it's, it's a family name. Um, when I was born, I was the third. I was the youngest. I've got an older brother and then a sister is between us. Nobody played golf in my family. My uh, my great-grandmother, her married name was Hogan. She was a Bentley and married a Hogan, so it, it came from her. And, Man, and nobody played golf at all. My dad started playing when he was about 35 and became a, 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 a one handicap, became a very good player. He was a good athlete, and you know he was the one that really got me into golf. My mother played as well, so give her a little credit too. But, you know, dad was the one that really got me interested. And uh, growing up in Augusta, you can imagine how – with the Masters being such a huge tournament and tremendously huge for the city of Augusta, that had a lot to do with it as well. But uh, it's a family name, Hogan. It's—I uh, don't know if the press always believed me when I told them that, but it's uh, <laughs> it has nothing to do with golf. It's just an amazing coincidence.
1: Yeah, I can imagine you getting a lot of questions about that uh, over the course of your life, and I'm sure most people like us probably assumed it had uh, uh, its roots in golf somewhere.
2: Yeah, I mean it makes perfect sense, but no no connection with golf, just happened to be a family name. And they gave it to me as my middle name. And it's been fun. You know, I've carried it. To my youngest son gave it to him as his middle name. So we've tried to carry that on uh, with my children as well.
1: Oh, that's terrific. Well, tell us a little bit about the early days growing up. What was it like uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s in Augusta, Georgia?
2: Well, you know, I had a great childhood. Um, it was wonderful. You know, I, my parents were wonderful. They were very supportive of me playing golf. And as I said, I, I took it up when I was about, I guess I went to the golf course when I was five or six for the first time. I don't remember very much there. The I really started playing a lot when I was about nine years old in Augusta, Georgia. They had a great junior program at Augusta Country Club with Frank Carney, who was a professional there. And a lot of great players. Uh, the Mulheron family had a lot of good players that I played and competed against. And Wonderful time to for me. I have nothing but great memories looking back, playing Augusta Country Club. I was very fortunate to, to play a really good golf course, an old Donald Ross course that uh, it sits right behind Augusta National, as we talked about earlier. So it was wonderful time for me, and I just – I love the game. I fell in love with it at this early age. My brother and sister didn't take to it. I was the only one that took to it, and it was – it was wonderful. I have great memories of my childhood playing golf with dad and, and friends. And I was, I was consumed with golf.
0: Who was, who, who would you think is the, the guy that influenced your game the most?
2: I really think it was my dad. I, I can't think of anybody else. My dad was a good player. We would, we would go out in the front yard. We had a a U U-shaped driveway, you know, just a big U. You could come in and circle, and go right back out. And then from that driveway, it was a Walkway straight into the front door and dad and I would get in the front yard and see who could land it over the walkway the closest and keep it there so we <laughs> would do a lot of chipping back and forth and he really you know, he really pressed for me to get my short game good he had a good short game he wanted me to get you know good with the putter and the wedge so we did a lot of short game work with him in the house at, in the front yard and believe it or not I did not let my kids do this but they allowed me to hit wedges from the front yard to the back over the house so oh I would hit it over house and go back, <laughs> back over the house the other way. And somehow I, didn't, I didn't break any windows, thank goodness. But I had a lot of fun doing that. So dad was a big influence in my life to get me going. And a lot of great memories of playing golf when I was younger with him.
1: We broke a lot of windows with playing baseball, but I don't think they ever <laughs> golf. hit balls over the house.
2: <laughs> I still can't believe they let me do it. Looking back, I'm thinking, what were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So tell us a little bit about uh, other ways you learned the game. Were you watching some of your heroes on television? Were you reading some of the famous golf books, reading magazines? How how did you pick up various aspects of the game uh, besides uh, working with your father?
2: You know, I don't remember reading a lot of books as as I got older. You know, I enjoyed a lot of books—Hogan's Five Fundamentals, uh, some of Nicholas's books. I I enjoyed those. But growing up, I just I just played. People used to say, you know, Mr. Carney said he's got a natural swing. Just kind of let him swing. I, I did some junior clinics, but really wasn't a lot of instruction. It was just going out and playing and learning how to play the game and learn how to score. And that was what I did. I just uh, I was a I was a golf club rat. I stayed out there and just every time I could, I was out there golf course playing and practicing and no real. Major influence, obviously Jack Nicklaus, being the great player that he was, he became my favorite golfer. Uh, so I was always pulling and uh, pulling for Jack and watching him. But I I couldn't swing like Jack Nicklaus. So I think people that influenced my swing, Sam Sneed and Gene Gene Littler, those swings more two beauties, yeah, two great swings. And I I think I used to look at them and watch them and try and copy their rhythm and tempo and. And that that seemed to fit me better. I couldn't do the grind it, bomb it like Jack did.
0: So one one question: How many hours did you spend on the practice behind the practice tee at Augusta, watching all the guys each year? I'm sure you spent a lot of time there.
2: Well, Bruce, you're right on. I, I was my favorite spot. I used to love to get in the bleachers behind the thing behind the uh, range and watch them hit, see what I could learn. I remember going from you know back then they hit on the left side and both the right sides, side. yeah. The I'd go either side and watch him hit. And I was just amazed how good they were, how well they hit it. I, I can remember watching, uh, Ed Sneed when I, I was older Now I was in high school when Ed Sneed played so well and he was just hitting these fairway woods and his caddy was hardly moving. And it was just amazing to watch them and try and learn from what they do, what they did, watching Trevino warm up. And it was, uh, it was just, I was, I was loving it. That was, uh, my dream to get out there and, to get there and watch those guys, it was so much fun.
0: And then to turn around and win it. That put that was the icing on the cake, wasn't it?
2: Well, it really was. I, I you know, I'll never forget and you know, winning Memphis in eighty three, getting in the tournament in eighty four was my first year. And I was I was so nervous teeing it up. Monday it rained, so I didn't really get to play much on Monday. Tuesday I teed it up. I could barely keep the ball on the tee on the first tee. I was so nervous just in the practice. <laughs> so, so I was so nervous Tuesday and Wednesday that Thursday I was actually still very nervous, but actually a little better because I was getting a little used to being there. But so exciting to get there and play in that golf tournament. And you know, my first year was great. I tied for eleventh my first year there in ninety and eighty four, and that auto, automatically got me back. Got so back again. Got off, to, got off to a really good start there in the Masters my first year, which was really. Just wonderful memories.
1: Yeah, well, Ben Crenshaw won that first Masters you played in, and uh, your friend Ben just turned 70 yesterday.
2: Yeah, my wife was showing me. She was watching on Instagram or whatever it is. They had some pictures and videos of them singing happy birthday to Ben. So, yeah, I got to see that. So, hard to believe it. Time flies. Yeah, it sure is.
1: I want to go back to something that I think some of our older listeners would have picked up on when you guys talked about – hitting balls and practicing at Augusta hitting from both sides. I assume you guys were hitting out toward Washington road, right? Correct. And, uh, it's unlikely that you guys were bombing it out into the street back then. That's-
2: I never did bomb it in the street. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I was, if I hit one really, 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 really good, I could fly it to the bottom of the net. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but something you said, uh, uh you know, it's interesting, and then some people are going to miss this, but but you said, talking about Ed Sneed and watching him hit, what did you say, four wood? Three wood. Three wood? Yes.
2: Four wood, yes.
1: And what you said was that his caddy barely moved, and some of the younger people can't relate to that because this might have been back when you guys, uh, well, at least at some tournaments, were using your own shag bag and your caddies were out there shagging your balls. You were hitting toward your caddy.
2: Well, that, that's exactly right. And by the time I got there and by the time I got on tour, that was, it was over with, we were hitting, a, we were using practice balls. Um, and you know, we had, we were, we could use our own caddy in 84, but I think it was somewhere 80 to 82 where they allowed you to bring your own, own caddy. Prior to that, you had to use a master's caddy and you would hit your practice balls and your caddy would be out there. And, you know, I know it could be dangerous for some caddies, different balls out there, but that was a different, uh, you know, it was already passed when I got there. The one thing that I do remember that is kind of funny, when I first got on the PGA tour, you actually had to pay for your practice, for your range balls and they'd be stripers. I remember hitting (laughs) yellow stripers on the range and I had to pay, you know, like $2 for a bucket of balls. And you also had to pay for lunch. You know, you, you didn't have, the food wasn't free. You had to go buy the little book of little coupons and go buy your get your hot dog or whatever so uh things have changed a lot
0: but Times it was the old changed.
2: days where you would hit your balls to your caddy and uh i'm sorry i didn't get to do that a little bit because i uh, i think there's a lot of positive of that i mean you would need to be really focused when you're practicing but when there your caddies out there and you got other caddies i think that just helps you zero in even a little bit more to really try and focus and hit your target so i think it was a it was a good thing
0: not sure that the caddies would agree with you, Mr. Mize. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
2: agree with that. I would not want to be a caddy out there. I'd want to have a hard hat on, definitely. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, those those were the days. I, I can remember two players talking about um, either they had turned pro or maybe it was still when they were – still amateurs, but uh, they had their own shag bag. But more importantly, they had to mark their balls somehow so that as they were mixed in with other balls out there, they knew which balls were theirs. And some guys had paint them. Some guys had used fingernail polish. A lot of methods, I guess.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I remember um, one time I went to, uh, it was 9-11. I got stuck in Dallas when the towers went down and David Frost took me out to Preston Trails and we practiced a little bit that day. And I believe I used Miller Barber's balls, and he had them marked certain ways so that we could remember that which ones were his because I was able to use his practice, uh, practice balls. And uh, you had to do something because, like I said, we're not always going to knock the caddy down. They're going to go a little sideways <laughs> sometimes.
1: <laughs> well, let's talk about the first time you remember uh, stepping foot onto the Augusta National Grounds. I know you worked there as a youngster, but uh, you remember that first time?
2: I can't vividly remember the first time I I do remember, you know, going there as a spectator, the the tickets were a lot easier to come by back then. My dad was able to get tickets. So when we lived in Augusta. We went to the masters every year, you know, it was the spring break. So there was no school. So everybody was out. So I'd go out there and spectate and get autographs. And I remember getting Lionel tees from guys and Lionel A. Bear had his name on his tee, you know, and so Lionel and J. A. Bear and getting autographs. And I, just wish I'd have kept all that stuff. I don't know where any of it is now, but I really wish I'd have kept it because it was a lot of fun being out there as a young kid, getting the autographs of those great players and seeing them and everything and and then getting to uh, you know watch them on the practice range, like Bruce said. And then once you became a teenager, so once I turned 13, uh, I maybe my dad had some impact, I don't know, but I was able to get a job out there on working on the scoreboard. So for two years when I was 13 and 14 before we moved to Columbus, Georgia, I worked on the scoreboard on number three and it was a lot of fun going up and down, putting the numbers up and peeking through the, you know, you pull the little thing back <laughs> and put the number there. We peeked through there to see what was going on. And what I liked about working on the third hole was, you know, you had an early and late shift. And when I had the early shift, I got through and half the field hadn't peed off so I could go watch them practice and play. And then even when I had the late shift, once we had the, got the numbers down and put them back in the box, the leaders were still on four or five. So I still had a lot of golf I could go watch. So it was a great time. They gave me a little ticket for a free lunch and I was, I was in, uh, I was in heaven out there.
1: Yeah, I bet you were. And, uh, you know, thinking about that time spent on number three, were there any learnings you took away from playing the golf course later that you picked up like when that pin was left or how you might attack that hole?
2: You know, that's, that's a good question. I don't think so. I, I, I don't, I think I was too young to really pick up on anything like that. I, I think I learned that as I started playing as I got older, but, um, yeah, I didn't, I did, didn't really pick up anything. I was just loving being out there watching it and, uh, and soaking it all in.
1: So you must've played in high school.
2: Did played in high school, uh, uh, two years in Columbus, Georgia, and then back my senior year in Augusta late in high school. And it was, uh, it was great, you know. Played, uh, played around. Didn't, uh, wasn't anything. Sp- I was a good player. Nothing really special. Never won the state, uh, state, any uh, more state tournaments or anything. But still love playing, and still dreamed of playing the tour.
1: So, when did your game really make a step change where you thought, ah, this may be something I, I could do for a living?
2: Well, you know, I always dreamed that, and I, I never lost sight of that dream and that and that hope. Uh, after high school, I went to Georgia Tech and played golf there. And it was after Georgia Tech, I we moved back in Columbus, and I decided to give it a shot. And so I turned pro, which you know, a lot of people say, how do you turn pro? And I'm thinking, "You just turn pro. There's nothing you have to do. And yeah. so I applied for the tour school and went down to Disney World, and we played the Magnolia golf course for the first stage of tour school. And I found out I was not near as good as I hoped or thought I was. I Barely made the 36-hole cut. Didn't make it past the first stage. And that's when I said, I've got to really get my game going. I don't think I had the greatest work ethic prior to that. I enjoyed playing, and I was you know, a decent player, but I was never an All-American, never won any tournaments in college, didn't play in a bunch of big amateur tournaments, did play in the U.S. Amateur once, didn't make it to match play. So when I came back after that uh, fall tour school of 1980, or excuse me, spring tour school of 1980, That's when I said, I got to get to work. So George Cliff was the pro out at uh, Fort Benning Golf Club out at the base here. And I said, Could I come pick up the range balls and hit all the balls I wanted? So I got a job picking up the range and I'd get out there early in the morning and I got one of those big old buckets of balls and I just started beating balls to get better. And that summer I really improved a, a great deal where I qualified for the Southern Open there at Green Island and made the cut and was actually on the leaderboard with nine holes to play. And I saw that leaderboard and that, that like <laughs> news. Uh, I, I, I backed up to about 37th place or something. And, uh, but what I, what I did do, and I don't know whether it was a mistake or not, but I thought, well, I'm going to try and play my way on tour. So I withdrew from tour school, uh, went to Pensacola, because if you, you, as we talked before, if you make the cut, you can keep yeah, playing. Yeah, I had the chance to play in another tour event and I just wasn't going to pass that up. Sure. So went to Pensacola and I missed the cut by one shot. Oh. So that was the last term of the year. So that ended it. So I had to wait till the spring of 81 to go back to tour school again.
1: Yep, and as we talked about last time, uh success from there. But it was a tough grind for a few years. Uh uh going to Japan, uh playing uh in some of the tour events in the US finally and uh and then breaking through with that first win which we talked about in our earlier visit uh at the Danny Thomas in nineteen eighty three. Why don't we uh uh and, and the other thing I guess I picked up on that you said, Larry, you know, back when you decided you were gonna become a pro. All it took back then is just saying I'm a pro, right?
2: Yeah. right. And, I, and I think it's the same thing now. I mean, you can just turn pro and just start playing and accepting money instead of being an amateur. So unless something's changed, it's still the same. So everybody says, how do you do this? Now, being a pro is one thing. Being a PGA Tour pro is a whole different ballgame. You've got to go through the tour school and explain it to people that it's actually not a school. It's, it's a series of tournaments that you have to play your way yeah. on. And, you know, back when I did it, there was a first stage and a final. That was it. A seventy-two hole first stage, and a seventy-two hole final. Now you've got pre-qualifier, first stage, second stage, and then a final. I think you've got four stages now, and it's a it's a grind. I mean, I think everybody that's gone through a tour school says that's something I don't ever want to have to do again.
0: Yeah, and then you gotta then you gotta go out on the uh, on the what, what a lot of people call the mini tour before you can get on the PGA tour. So
2: that's that's right, and uh, you know they didn't have the like the Corn Ferry Tour back then, so I went down and played the JC JC Goosey Mini Tour down in Florida. Down Florida. I did it uh, the summer of 80, I did it, and it was only two-day tournaments, which I thought, this is this not enough golf, two days, so I didn't think I would ever go back. But after missing tour school in the spring of 81, I went back again because they made it three days, and I thought three days was much better because I remember – one time, after two days, I'm not in the money, and then after the third day, I played a good round. I got I got in the money, so I lost money in eighty and eighty one. I broke even, so I was you know happy with that. But once again, just gaining experience. Yeah. I like to tell young players, what do you need to do? Well, you, you got to play. You got to get in tournament golf. You got to get experience and learn how to play and score and learn how to win. And uh, that's what I was doing back then, and uh, it was a grind. But you know, I was I was loving it because I was getting to do what I wanted to do.
0: Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off
2: albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me, one in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's gonna leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it, because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf, and that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pam. And Shepard, as we dive into them, insane vets, crazy what if scenarios, and all the you had to be there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross?
1: One thing you mentioned in our first visit that I wanted to come back to with you, and, uh, it was you talking about developing and learning and so forth as a young pro. And, and, and the words you used were, one of the things I had to do was learn to control my anger. Now, I don't remember ever seeing in the same sentence, Larry Mize and, <laughs> and
0: anger. anger. <laughs> That's
2: right. Well, I, 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 guess, I guess I hit it well. But, you know, to, to be successful out on the PGA Tour, you've got to be very competitive. Yeah, and I, I'm very competitive. So, I do have an anger. I mean, people always, I'll never forget, they, you know, Tiger came along and everybody said, nobody hates to make bogeys as much as Tiger. And I want to say, I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> everybody <laughs> hates, to you know, everybody <laughs> hates to make bogeys. So, um, but I, I really did. I had to learn to control it because you can't, it's very easy to let the anger affect the next shot and then the next shot. You've got to learn to get the anger out of some way to release it, to vent it somehow and to control it so it doesn't affect the next shot because it's not doing you any good. And so had to learn to control that. I just didn't show it outwardly as much as some guys do, I guess, yeah. but it's something I think everybody has to, face to control that anger. Um, you know, like fuzzy Zeller is a great example. I think fuzzy his whistling is a way that he kind of controls mm-hmm. his anger and stays calm out there. And, uh, I think that was the thing. I enjoy playing with fuzzy fuzzy. is a great guy and a great player. And, uh, he was a good partner for me uh, in in tournament. So I really enjoyed playing with him and had a lot of success with him. So, but I did have to learn to control that. No doubt.
1: Well, let's come back. If we can, we talked about your master's experience first time we got together. And uh, one thing we didn't establish was that playing with the power built citation driver.
2: Yes, I did. I, uh, you know, power built was famous for great forged irons and great persimmon woods and it took a while to work it in there. I used to play with an old Tommy Armour, uh, I think it was a 695 mm-hmm. driver. It was a beautiful driver. It was a red, white, red insert. I just loved it. And Powerbuilt, uh, they did finally got me a great driver, a Powerbuilt that I was able to put in the bag. And I still have that driver in it. It's a sweet piece of wood. And I was able to get that in there. And uh, it was uh, it was fun because you once you get a good piece of wood in your bag, You don't change like, you know, nowadays Mm -hmm. we're changing metal woods every year. Maybe every six months we're changing drivers. Back then, you got a good piece of wood. You may use that thing for five, ten years.
0: We even used to look for the guys that were trying to sell them outside of the gate at golf tournaments where guys would go pick up all the old McGregor clubs and stand there and charge you two or $300 for a a really good-looking driver
2: exactly you know we did that with the drivers you know we did it with the putters too you know i put it with that 8802 for for many years and you know guys would be collecting those and selling them so it was it was uh sometimes you'd hit a driver and it just the wood wasn't solid you didn't the density wasn't there and it was not good but you get one that's good and you could tell it and like bruce said you'd you'd pay you'd pay whatever for it to hang on to it
1: well you've played in uh in several masters to date you had some a couple of other good finishes uh, back in the '90s. You may recall uh, your tournament back in '92. I think that's the year Freddie Couples won. You finished tied sixth. Uh, pretty good leaderboard back then. What do you remember about that tournament?
2: You know, one of the first things that I remember is I made a really nice 15 to 20 footer on the last hole for birdie. <laughs> things that you remember. Uh, it was pin was on the back left, and I made this right to lefter. And it's kind of funny; it just popped in my head out of the blue, and I remember making that putt for birdie and had a really good week. I had a new caddy uh, that year, Chuck Moore, who did a great job for me. And that was, a, that was a fun week. You know, anytime you get in contention at Augusta, it's just it's a blast. Uh, you know, obviously I'm partial to Augusta. Of all the majors, they're all special. But playing getting contention there was a lot of fun, and I remember having a great week that year.
0: Well, then you you even got closer a couple of years later, and you finished third in the –
2: 94 yeah you know it's funny and uh, Bruce I don't know if you ever feel this way I remember after 94 I told I thought to myself I might have played better in 94 than I did 87 but I just didn't win yeah I mean I played so good with uh, the scores were lower you know in 87 the course was hard and fast we only shot three under this year the scores were lower and I was uh, battling with I think I played with Tom kite he was in it in the heat and you know Olaf Abel won and Tom Lehman finished second we were battling it and I just couldn't get the putts to go in. I played really well. I remember 15, I was, you know, I said, I got to go for it. I pulled out a two iron, which I don't carry a two iron anymore. Yeah. And I hit a really good shot, but I knocked it over the green, didn't get up and down, which kind of hurt, and just didn't quite get it done. And, uh, you know, the way it goes, Olathabo made the putts, and he won the golf tournament. But playing third and really contending again in 94 was uh, it was just a lot of fun. I have great memories of that year.
1: Yeah, looking back, I'm sure you're you keep pinching yourself. That's one you could have won.
2: Yeah, it is. But you know, hey, Olaf Abbott played great. Uh, you know, I just didn't quite get the job done. And you gotta make the putts, you gotta get the ball in the hole, and I, I didn't that year, but I, I played really well and great memories. I the one thing I did do, and uh I don't know if this ever happened to you, Bruce, but I on the eighteenth hole I, I I was out of it. I you know, it was far enough back where I couldn't couldn't win, and the disappointment hit me. And I kind of lost focus and I bogeyed the last hole, which cost me time for second. And I finished third. And that was really, yeah. really aggravating. Did not keep my focus once I couldn't win. You know, it was a little bit of letdown. Yeah. And I made a, made a, a bad bogey. And uh, so Tom, Tom finished second by himself and I finished third. So disappointing to do that. Uh, I still remember that, unfortunately. But it was a lot of fun week. I remember uh, somebody yelling to me as I went off the 18th tee, you know, hey, Larry, thanks for a great week. And. You know, comments like that are very special. Pretty nice, and yeah. They were you know thanking me for you know giving them some fun to pull for, being in contention again. It was a very special comment that I have not forgotten.
0: So, um, listen, tell us tell us a little bit about the fact that uh, the winners of the Masters get to go back and have dinner with all the champions each year. That's got to be a lot of fun.
2: I tell you, Bruce, that's that's a day I look forward to every year, and I'm looking forward to it this year to to get to go back and see all those champions and, and meet some I didn't know, you know, like I, I didn't know Henry Pickard, Herman Kaiser, some of the guys that I, I didn't know. You know, I, I don't know if I knew Sam Snead at the time and Gene Sarazen. you know, I, I'd met, you know, Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer, uh, but to get to go have dinner with them uh, is just so, so special. Um, I, I It's hard to put into words. That is one of my favorite nights of the year. And it's great camaraderie with those guys, get to listen to their stories. Um you know, Jackie Burke, uh, he, he isn't able to come back, but I remember the few times Jackie Burke came it was just unbelievable to listen to Jackie Burke tell stories. It was one of my favorite things sitting and listening to him and Sam Sneed talking and just soaking it up. It's a very special night where it's a, a camaraderie and to be with those guys. I'll never forget um, a few years after I won, you know, they're saying, does anybody got any comments? And I, shaking in my boots. I, I stood up, you know, I was about 30 years old. I, I stood up. I, I want to say one thing. I just want to thank everybody for coming back for those guys to come back every year. It was so special for me as a young player to get, to be with these guys, to come back. And it's just very special. And I'll never forget one time we're, we're leaving the dinner. It's over. And somebody said, uh, Gene Sarazen need to ride back to his hotel. I said, I'll take him. I'll drive him. So <laughs> I got to drive the squire back to his hotel. And, uh, it's just uh, you know, I've been very blessed to come along at a time that I've gotten to be with a lot of great players from from those guys all the way up to Tiger Woods, and it's, it's very uh, I feel very blessed and fortunate.
1: Well, what a great experience! You know, we we uh, released on on Ben's seventieth birthday yesterday a short track excerpt from our interview with him, uh, and it featured him talking about his experience hosting. Uh, evidently, years ago, Byron Nelson sort of passed the torch to Ben. He carries it nicely now. Uh, really, uh, really something special for him to be able to do that at the Masters.
2: Well, and Ben was the perfect choice. He, he you know, he knows so much history, and he does a phenomenal job. You know, Mister Nelson did a great job with it, and now Ben. I don't know who's going to take Ben's place. Uh, it's just going to be a, it's going to be a tough act to follow. Cause Ben is just so special of a guy to handle that up because of the, the connection that he has with the masters two-time champion and the historian that he is, he's going to be a tough act to follow, but he does a wonderful job and it's fun. I, I sit next to the at the end and I'm the first one going down the side. I always sit next to Ben and Langer sits next to me. We're good friends. So it's a special night to be between those two guys and just get to be with all the other guys there. And, uh, you know, sit across from just so many great, great champions. So in
1: 1988 at the master's dinner, which would have been your first as the defending champion, were you able to set the menu or was this still back when you had to order off the club menu?
2: No, I set the menu and I I thought they had to eat what I had, what I chose, <laughs> but they, they didn't have to, they could have chosen, you know, a steak, a fish or a chicken. Uh, and I, I guess you can still do that. You know, it used to be at the bottom of the menu. You could have something else, but now it's just that they don't have that on there, but you know, when someone has a special diet, I know that they'll fix something for them if they need to. So I kept it pretty simple and I'm kind of a meat and potatoes guy anyway. So I had steak, uh, and potatoes, green beans, just a real simple dinner. And, uh, then I, I did have peach cobbler being from the peach state of Georgia. I had peach cobbler trying to get a little Georgia, Georgia field in there with, uh, I sure hope I had it with ice cream. I like ice cream with my pie. So it was, that was my menu. And it was, you know, a great night. I still have the pictures that they, uh, you know, the photographer comes in there during the cocktail hour beforehand and takes picture of the champions and got me some pictures with, you know, Arnold Palmer and Byron Nelson and the pictures with those guys uh, to commemorate my, my champions dinner was, uh, was very, very special. And it was a great night. And it still is. I, I was probably too nervous that night. I, I like to tell the Young champions. If I if I know them well, to hey, enjoy the dinner, relax. You deserve to be there because it's a little intimidating being up there. And you know, do I really belong here? As a you know, I was 29 at the time. I won when I was 28, so a little intimidating. But it was still a great night, and I I can't wait for this year.
1: So uh, I remember Charlie Cootie, Bruce, (laughs) telling us that he didn't want any part of sandy lyle's haggis
0: that's right
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah you know and that is that is the only time i did not have the champions dinner i've had the <laughs> champions dinner every year but i could not couldn't, couldn't go I, for it huh <laughs> I couldn't go for it and I, I was i'm much more adventurous now and i still don't know if i could go for the haggis i don't know but uh yeah that was uh that was one where i definitely ordered something else
1: he said bring me a steak <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you got
1: sushi coming maybe this year
2: yeah maybe i hope so i love sushi i i went to japan 10 years before i finally tried it this little georgia boy said raw fish i'm not eating that stuff and after 10 years i said okay let me try it and you know they had the sushi on the bed of rice and let's no, just pop it in your mouth. You don't bite it, and I popped it in there, and I loved it. So yeah, it's right. been, uh, i look forward to it. And I know it'll be, Augusta National will be some really good sushi, too.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game,